All right, we are considering together uh, this morning uh, chapter 32 of our Confession of Faith, which deals with the subject of the Last Judgment. Does everybody have a Confession of Faith so that they can uh, read along as we uh, go through the, the passage? If you don't, uh, we have a bunch of them on the book rack in the back. Anyway, we're dealing with chapter 32, and we looked at paragraph 1, which deals with the certainty of the Day of Judgment, and then... Um, more recently, we've been dealing with paragraph two, which deals with the purpose of the day of judgment. And so we saw the purpose described and then the purpose accomplished. So it says in paragraph two regarding the purpose of the day of judgment, the end or the purpose of God's appointing this day is for, now here's the purpose described, the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. So what is God's purpose? The manifestation of the glory of his mercy on the elect, the manifestation of the glory of his justice on the reprobate. And we read about that in Romans 9, verses 22 through 24. But having declared uh, or having described the purpose, we then see the purpose manifested. And this is what we've been considering more recently. The, the purpose uh, is, is accomplished in the disposition of the righteous and in the disposition of the wicked. It says, for... Then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and glory with everlasting reward in the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ shall be cast into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. So we considered together in our previous studies the disposition of the righteous. We talked about the fact that they would receive everlasting life. We talked about the fact that they would receive joy, glory, and reward. And then last time we talked about the fact that they would enjoy the presence of the Lord. And so today we move on to the unhappy part of this paragraph humanly speaking, and that has to do with the disposition of the wicked. God does not rejoice in the punishment of the wicked, and we do not either, but nevertheless, it is a truth that's revealed in the scripture. We need to understand it, and we need to tell others about it in order to encourage them to flee from the wrath to come. The reason why the issue of damnation and hell and eternal punishment is revealed to us is so that we might know about it and flee from it ourselves, and so that we might warn others as well, so that no one is taken by surprise on the day of judgment and go, oh, I didn't know this is what was waiting for me if I lived in rebellion against God. Uh, the Bible is very clear about what is waiting for people who live in rebellion against God. In fact, what is fascinating is that Jesus Christ talked much more about hell than he ever talked about heaven. And the Bible speaks much more about hell than it does about heaven. And so the Bible is replete and full of warnings 
about the end of those who know not God and those who obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we want to do today then is to uh, consider once again, we uh, previously considered this when we studied chapter 31, the state of man after death and the resurrection of the dead, but we're going to return to it again because our confession does as well. Back in chapter 31 and in paragraph 1, it says that the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torment and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. And then, of course, our paragraph says, The wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ shall be cast into everlasting torment and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. So twice in two successive chapters, this issue is addressed. And uh, it's incumbent upon us to be aware of and to understand what the Bible says about it and to believe what it says about it, because it certainly is true in spite of what people might want to believe. See, no one, you know, it's just like criminals. They go out and commit crimes and they're shocked when they get caught and thrown in jail. And it's like, come on, you guys, you knew what was coming, but they lie to themselves and they think, well, the other guys will get caught, but I won't get caught. You know, they'll get thrown in jail, but I'll get away with it. And people tell themselves the same thing about spiritual things is they tell themselves, well, you know, God won't know, God won't see, God won't find out, God won't remember. Um, I'll skate through and skate by and I won't have any consequences for my sins. Simply not true. Um, and so let's look at our, our passage. So first of all, then we're considering together the disposition of the wicked and our confession describes who these folks are. It tells us of their characteristics. It says of them that they, it says, but the wicked, and then here's their characteristics, they know not God, and they obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are their characteristics. Now, this phrase, they know not God, and they obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, is taken straight out of 2 Thessalonians Chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. So let's turn there in our Bibles, please. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, and verses 7 through 9. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians. And then the Timothys come afterward. So 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Verses 7 through 9. Now Paul is speaking to the Thessalonian believers and he's telling them that their persecutions are going to come to an end. And he describes the end of these persecutions as being when Jesus comes back the second time. Now notice 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. He says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, now notice verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come. Now, this text has a, has a lot in it, but at the very least, it describes the characteristics of the wicked and it describes them in, in two phrases. It says in verse 8, that they know not God and they obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's not that they don't know about God, but it's that they don't have a personal relationship with him. And so when the Bible talks about knowing God, it's talking about having a personal relationship with God. So when you say about someone, oh, I know them, what you mean is you've met them, you have an acquaintance with them, you have a knowledge of them, and you have a relationship with them. And so that's why Jesus said in John chapter 17 and verse 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And so God says to Israel in Amos 3 and verse 2, You only have I known of all the nations of the earth. Um, and so when the Bible talks about someone knowing someone, it's talking about having a personal relationship with them. So these people do not know God. That is, they do not have a personal relationship with him. Why? Well, notice the next phrase. They obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is the means through which you come into a personal relationship with God. And the gospel calls us to obey. The gospel is a summons. The gospel is a command. And that summons and that command is repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you will know God. That is, you will have a personal relationship with him. That's how you come to know God or have a personal relationship with him is by obeying the gospel. And so what's interesting here is that the word obey clearly indicates that the gospel is not just an invitation you can take or leave. It's a commandment that must be obeyed. And to refuse the gospel, it isn't like, you know, someone comes along and says, hey, you know, would, would you like to go to a party at my house this Friday? That's an invitation. When, when the police officer pulls you over and he says, Get out of the car. That's not an invitation. That's a command. And, uh, and there's a big difference. One, you have the option of obeying or not obeying as you see fit. The other, a summons, a command is something you must obey or there's consequences. And so the gospel comes and uh, it comes as a summons or as a command. It is that which we need to obey. And when we do not obey the gospel then the result is, is that God comes and in flaming fire takes vengeance on those who do not have a personal relationship with God because they did not obey the summons of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the result is, it says, they're punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. And so we're going to 
uh, get to that phrase in a moment or two. But notice then their characteristics. They do not know God. They're not in a personal relationship with God. And they did not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting there is what's not said. And that is, is, is people say, think, well, if, I, if I'm going to avoid hell, I've got to be a really good person. It doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't say that he will come and in flaming fire take vengeance on those who uh, didn't obey the Ten Commandments. It says he will come and take vengeance on those who do not have a personal relationship with God through obeying the terms of the gospel. And so it's very simple, folks, to avoid the vengeance of God, the flaming fire of God, the punishment that is everlasting from God. You simply have to obey the gospel and you won't go to hell. That's the good news. The bad news is we're all bound to hell. The good news is we can escape it. And the way we escape it is not by being really, really good people. It's by repenting of our sins and believing in Christ as our Savior. That's how we escape this flaming fire and this vengeance and this eternal punishment. And that's, that's the good news of the gospel. Now, for those who don't, and there are many who laugh off the gospel, don't want anything to do with the gospel, um, for them, uh, our confession goes on to say that um, they shall be cast into everlasting torment and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Now, our text makes it clear what this everlasting um, torment is and this everlasting destruction is. It says the torment in verse 8 is flaming fire, taking vengeance. And then verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Now, a lot of people think that what happens to people who haven't embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God comes back and he just annihilates them. And they say, look, it says right there in the text, everlasting destruction. But what's interesting is that there isn't a period after that word destruction. It tells us what that everlasting destruction has reference to. It doesn't have reference to their persons. It's not their persons that are going to suffer everlasting destruction. It says they're going to suffer everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. That is, the opportunity for being in the presence of the Lord forever is what is everlastingly destroyed. In other words, after you die and go to hell, there will never be a chance for reconciliation with God. It is that chance that has been everlastingly destroyed. Furthermore, if the punishment for sin was annihilation, then that's what should have happened to Jesus on the cross. When Jesus suffered for sins, the wrath that we would have and should have suffered in hell, was he annihilated? He wasn't. 
So those who are not objects of that redemptive and saving work, who suffer for their own sins, will experience the same thing. They will not be annihilated. They will suffer under the wrath of God. So annihilation, that is the cessation of existence after one dies, is simply not supported uh, by one iota of evidence in the scripture. Go ahead, Eric. There's no injustice with annihilation. Okay, explain that. Um, it's, if someone does something wrong and they, they're just annihilated, uh, they haven't paid their fine, um, and it's not fair for them to uh, just get off with annihilation. Um, they need to uh, suffer for their wrong. Okay, good. I think that's an accurate observation. All right, well, let's look at some scripture passages that deal with the whole subject of everlasting torment punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Um, this business of being um, punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord is, excuse me, I'm going to sneeze here. I thought, don't you just hate that? It's like you want to and it doesn't quite come. All right, got through that one. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, we have a, a description of this uh, separation from the presence of the Lord. And uh, <clears throat> Luke sixteen nineteen. Luke 16, 19, it says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell... That's where he is now. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, clearly, this man wasn't annihilated. He's in hell. He's conscious. He's going through torments. That is, over the process of time, he's being tormented. Verse 24, And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. So he's not annihilated, he's conscious, he's aware, he's undergoing ongoing torment, and he makes this request for relief uh, from heaven. Verse 25, But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf Fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Now that's the everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, is this great gulf that is fixed between hell and heaven, and there's no crossing over. And that's why the Bible says, now is the time of salvation, because after you die, there is no salvation. 
There's no second chance after you die. If you're not reconciled to God in this life, you will never be reconciled to God forever. The opportunity for reconciliation with God will be everlastingly destroyed. So the destruction is from the presence of the Lord. The rich man here who's in hell is not able to experience any of the blessings that those who are in the presence of the Lord experience because there's this divide between heaven and hell over which uh, they can never cross. And so the opportunity to be in the presence of the Lord is eternally destroyed because this gulf is fixed. So that's what First Thess- Second Thessalonians is talking about. Now, what we want to do is, in the remaining minutes, look at a, a number of passages um, rather quickly that deal with the subject of the everlasting torment. Now, it says here in our text that this man is experiencing torment. He's experiencing torment in, uh, <clears throat> in, in hell, in the flames. He specifically refers to the flame. He says, I'm tormented in this flame. And so the Bible uses fire uh, as the um, declaration of, of the nature of the punishment that's going on in hell. You remember in Second Thessalonians it says, in flaming fire taking vengeance. So let's look at this motif. Mark chapter 9, the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 48. Mark 9, 42 through 48. Um, Jesus here is talking about young children who repent of their sins and believe in Christ. And he says in in Mark 9.42, And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me. Now notice this isn't an infant that has no consciousness of believing. This is a young child, maybe five years old, who has repented and believed in Christ. Okay? And someone comes along and they make an effort to destroy that child's faith. Or they come along and they grievously sin against that child. Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. For it is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. For it is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm dieth not, and their fire is not quenched. Now, Jesus isn't literally uh, asking us to commit personal dismemberment, okay? But what he is saying is that the sins that are as near and dear to us as our hands and as our eyes and as our feet, that we need to cut those things off and repent of them and turn away from them And in particular, the sins you're talking here about is sins against little ones who believe in him. Because if you don't, what's the alternative? The alternative is to go to hell. 
And it says of this hell that the fire shall never be quenched and the worm dies not. Now, whatever he's talking about there with the worm and the fire, clearly he's talking about something that goes on and on and on and on. And why would the worm go on and the fire go on if the people that were the objects of it were annihilated? Um, how long do you keep your fire going? Well, as long as you need the heat, right? But when you're done cooking, what do you do with the fire? You put it out. But as long as you're using the fire, the fire, you keep it going. And here, clearly, the fire goes on for eternity. And if the people were annihilated, why would the fire keep going on? There would be no reason or purpose for it. So clearly, those that are cast into it remain in it forever because the fire goes on forever. Uh, in Isaiah 66, uh, which is where uh, Mark, well, Jesus, I should say, uh, quoted this passage from, notice Isaiah 66, verses 22 to 24. Isaiah here is prophesying of the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, which God speaks of in Revelation 21 and 22 after the coming of Christ. Notice Isaiah 66, 22. It says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Lord. So here we have people who are in the new heavens and the new earth, we're in the eternal state after the second coming of Christ, we come periodically to worship God. There's going to be time periods in heaven. Okay. Verse 24. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcass of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring to all flesh. And so Jesus was referring back to this passage in Isaiah when he was speaking in Mark 9, 42 to 48. And he was literally quoting this passage. And what this passage is saying is that as long as we go on through eternity, what Abraham and Lazarus saw when they looked into hell and saw the rich man there, we are going to be able to see. It says we will go forth and look upon these people who have transgressed against God. Their worm shall not die neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring to all flesh throughout all eternity. So clearly, annihilation is not what happens to people after they die. They either are eternally conscious and blessed in heaven, or they are eternally conscious and tormented in hell. And the hell goes on as long as the heaven goes on. Now, to make that really clear, let's turn to Matthew chapter 25. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 25. Now we've looked at this passage many times as we've studied the subject of eschatology or the, what's going to happen at the end. And in Matthew 25 and in verse 41... 
Jesus is speaking of the wicked, and um, they are called the goats. They are on the left hand of Christ on the day of judgment. And notice Matthew twenty-five forty-one. Then shall Jesus say to them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, notice, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and of his angels. Why would it need to be everlasting fire if they were all just going to be annihilated? No reason. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you took me not in naked, and you clothed me not sick and in prison. You visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee unhungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto me, unto thee? And then shall he answer and say, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not unto me. Now notice verse 46. These shall go away into everlasting punishment. Now notice in verse 41 it talked about everlasting fire. And now in verse 46 it talks about everlasting punishment. Now, how long is everlasting? It's everlasting. It lasts forever, right? It says, but the righteous shall go into life eternal. And in the original language, the exact same words are used. The same words are used for eternal life as are used for eternal punishment. Same word, eternal. Okay? So as long as eternal life is, we all know how long that is, right? It's forever and without end. The exact same word is used to describe eternal punishment. It's forever and without end. So the vain hope that people cherish that they can live wickedly and in defiance of God and when they die the lights go out and that's it and they never know anything ever again is a vain hope. They're not going to escape the judgment of God. And so they have eternal existence in the torment of hell, they don't have eternal life, which is eternal union with God. Okay. So uh, the Bible is very clear that the condition is one of everlasting torment and everlasting destruction from God's presence, not everlasting destruction of their persons. Okay. All right, are there any questions? or observations. Go ahead, Benjamin. I think that um, it's important to know that the reason that man's going to suffer forever is because he's offended an infinite God. And because man's not infinite as God is, there, you know, there's obviously an infinite penalty for our sin. Yeah. It's not a certain time that we can pay for something that we've offended against someone who's infinite. Yeah. And that's why Jesus is infinite because he's the only person who could actually pay the penalty because he's God. I mean, because he's... That's correct. Yeah, very good observation, Benjamin. <clears throat> the thing of it is, is that the punishment always fits the crime. And if you have a limited crime, what do you have? A limited punishment. If We see this in our own society, don't we? If I go and, and rob someone's house... How much time do I get in jail? Well, 10 years, let's say. Now, if I go and commit manslaughter, you know, the 
unintentional killing of another human being through gross personal negligence. Um, drunk driving would be an example. What do you get for that? Well, you get 20 years. Now, if I commit second degree murder, which is I intended to kill the person, but there was very provoking circumstances, uh, caught my wife in bed with a boyfriend, so I killed them both. Okay, didn't plan it, wasn't premeditated, but I did it, I intended to do it and did it on purpose. Second degree murder, you get 30 years for that. But then there's first degree murder, right? Where you plan over the process of time in cold blood to kill someone. And, 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 and especially if there's special circumstances, you did it to you know, get money out of them or to torture them or something. What do you get for that? The death penalty, right? So we have different degrees of punishment based upon different degrees of crime. Now, if you commit a crime of infinite evil, what does that deserve? An infinite punishment. And the way you commit a crime of infinite evil is to commit it against an infinite God. And so here we are as human beings, when we sin against God, that is a crime of infinite evil because it was committed against an infinite being and therefore it deserves an infinite punishment. And that's why punishment is everlasting because the nature of the crime is so great. Well, how long did Jesus suffer on the cross? Well, it wasn't all eternity, was it? So how could he suffer for just a few hours and compensate for us suffering for all eternity? And the answer has to do with the nature of his sufferings. Because we're finite beings, we can only suffer at a finite level. And therefore, we must suffer for an infinite duration. But Jesus is an infinite being because he's the God-man and therefore he's capable of infinite suffering and therefore he only needs suffer for a limited duration. So your suffering is either, is either going to be eternal as to its extent or it needs to be eternal as to its degree. And that's why Jesus was able to suffer uh, for all of the sins of all of God's elect, that they would have suffered for all of eternity in his own person on the cross, not because the duration of his suffering was infinite, but because the degree of his suffering was infinite, because he was the God-man. And the punishment God put on him, no man could have ever borne, because if God put infinite amount of punishment on us, he would wipe us out. We couldn't bear it. So um, that's the wonder of the cross and the mystery of the cross is that it wasn't like Jesus had to only suffer for six hours and yet everybody else who doesn't believe in him has to suffer all eternity. How can that be fair? It's that there was an exact equivalency between the degree of his suffering and the degree that we would have suffered had we gone to hell because of his capacity for suffering and because of the nature of his person, he was able to suffer to an infinite degree and thus didn't need to suffer for an infinite duration. Does that make sense? Go ahead, Adam. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on this, uh, the suffering in context and payment for our sin? Um, I don't, what is, the, what is the difference between his suffering and the death? The wages of sin is death. So what is it? Was it his dying that paid for the sin, his death on the cross? Or are you saying... 
that that suffering, <coughs> those hours leading up to it on the cross, those also paid for the sin of well, when did Jesus say it is finished? Before he died or after? Just prior to him right. So the suffering was done at that point. Okay. Now, the question is if the suffering was done, why did he have to go ahead and die? Because that was the conclusion. Isn't that the requirement? Well, yes, it is. Um, but that, that, that was the separation of his soul and body. Okay, which is death, but it's not really the big deal. The big deal, the death he suffered was the forsaking by God, the separation between him and God. Because see, there's, there's a couple of different kinds of death. Okay, there's spiritual death, which is us being separated from God. There's physical death, which is our bodies being separated from our souls. And then there's eternal death, which is we're body and soul separated from God forever, permanently. Okay? And so, yeah, Jesus did have to die physically, but the true suffering was the separation of himself from God. That was the death. And that's when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the spiritual death that he experienced. And of course, the physical death followed, but... Um, it wasn't so much the suffering of the nails through his hands. Um, you know, I, I, I hope you didn't see the movie of The Passion uh, by Mel Gibson. Uh, but if you did, um, what did he emphasize? All the physical sufferings. Look, the physical sufferings in the grand scheme of things weren't that big of a deal. Lots of people have been crucified. The big deal was the, the, was the spiritual suffering of separation from his father. So, yes, Adam, he did have to die. That was part of it. But really, the actual separation of soul and body was the minor part. The, the, the major part was the separation of his self from his father when he was forsaken. Michael? Um, going back to the, uh, um, what we're talking about, um, Christ suffering for both him being able to pay the penalty because he is eternal because we have sinned against the eternal God. Um, in Mark uh, chapter 3, verses 28, Jesus talks about um, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Um, and it's it, um, it says, whoever, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. Yes. Yeah, the answer is it really isn't different. It's just a sin that Jesus chose not to atone for, for anyone under any circumstance. Jesus could have said, you know, whoever commits murder has never forgiveness in this world or in the world to come. He could have picked any sin. Um, I don't think blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is qualitatively different than blasphemy against Jesus or the Father. But it is an honor that the Father and the Son put upon the Spirit because of His subordination that they will not tolerate blasphemy against him. Anyway, our time is gone. I'm sorry. we got to quit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for 
the deliverance from hell. Thank you that Jesus came to save us from the wrath to come. Lord, help us to proclaim that salvation to others and be grateful for it ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.